The Bible. It's the Word of God, sharper than any two-edged sword. This sacred book is living and active and contains all that's needed for life and godliness. Stay with American Family Radio for the next hour as we study God's Word and take your Bible questions. Welcome to Exploring the Word. You know, as a Christian, every now and then I'm asked, do I take the book of Genesis literally? And I do. I do believe the book of Genesis is literal truth. I believe that God created in six days and rested on the seventh. And people sometimes ask me, why do you take Genesis literally? Well, there are a lot of reasons, but one of those is because Jesus took Genesis as literal truth. The Lord Jesus referred to Genesis and the creation accounts as literal truth. Well, with that, we welcome you to today's edition of Exploring the Word. I'm very excited. Here on the American Family Radio Network today, Bert Harper and I. Bert, you and I are blessed to have a lot of very special friends drop by, but today we, we've got two men in the media booth that God has used to touch millions of lives. Now, one name you may not know, but I assure you he's incredibly significant to the gospel in our age. That's Mark Lloyd. But the other name everybody will know, and that's Ken Ham. And we are so honored, and Bert, I'm going to throw to you, but I just want to say what an honor here at the National Religious Broadcasters Convention to have one of the most uh, courageous men of God, Ken Ham, Answers in Genesis, The Ark Encounter, welcome And I just want to say thank you for being with us today, but more importantly, Ken, thank you for all that you're doing to stand for the Word of God in our world. Thank you. Hey, it's uh, great to be here with you, and, uh, you know, it's uh, thrilling that uh, you love our ministry and what we do, and, you know, with the two leading Christian-themed attractions, the Ark Encounter, the Creation Museum, and impacting millions and millions of people, and, you know, our ministry is all about God's Word in the Gospel. Amen. Um, you know, a lot of people think that, oh, because we talk about Genesis a lot, uh, that, you know, we're on about the age of the earth and fossils and so on. But, you know, the whole emphasis ministry has always been the authority of the Word of God and the Gospel of Jesus Christ. And we deal with particular issues that undermine the authority of God's Word in Genesis in our age, because Genesis 1 to 11 is well, can I say it? The foundation for everything. It, it is. Amen. Uh, you know, you're talking about why you believe Genesis is literal. Well, I've read it, and it's only one that really makes sense. That's it true. really does. And I, I'm telling you, everything else that they teach is illogical. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, if you get the beginning, in the beginning, God, mm-hmm. after that is no problem. After right. that is no problem. The whole issue is God. And it's not the evidence that they start with. It is the assumption they start with, and they feed that assumption through falsehoods. Mm -hmm. And uh, anything but God. And when Darwinian evolution came along, it gave some people, oh, there's a way that we can answer some of the questions. But was it? did Darwin really say he was looking for the missing link and didn't couldn't find it? You know, now I, I'm using my language, Ken. Well, it's still missing. Know, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. What, what, where is it? And I, uh, they, the ones that I've seen have been made up, drawn from a composite, or find a jawbone that was kind of different, and from that jawbone they decided to get a whole kind. You know. So it's what funny, I'm saying yeah. is, it is so unsure. I, I saying that. And I was putting it all together for a reason. That's how unsure it is. But when you read the Word of God, you find some surety, Alex. But before we go any further, I want you to give uh, any and all relevant websites, Ken, how can they find Answers in Genesis and the Ark Encounter online? Well, our main website for the Answers in Genesis ministry, you know, it's called Answers in Genesis because we give answers in Genesis. Uh, We're an apologetics ministry, yes, and we don't apologize for our faith. Uh, We teach people apologetics, how to defend uh, the Christian faith and be equipped. So answersingenesis.org is our main website. And then for our two attractions, the Ark Encounter, the Creation Museum, they could just Google those or it's arkencounter.com, creationmuseum.org. Uh, but uh, they're three of our major websites. We have lots of other websites too, of course, and all sorts of social media and Mm -hmm. so on. People can follow us on Facebook and Twitter and all those other funny things that I don't even understand. And and you've got a book out, Divided Nation, Cultures in Chaos, and a Conflicted Church. Uh, I'm assuming this is your newest release? Well, it's... it's, um not quite the newest, but it's one of the new ones. In fact, I come out with two books just recently. That one, Divided Nations, Cult- Cultures in Chaos in a Conflicted Church, and 
also another one called Creation of Babel, which is a commentary verse by verse through Genesis 1 to 11 for the whole family. Oh, wow. Very easy to read, and yet I, I deal with all the in-depth stuff. It's a very different sort of com commentary. Uh, and one of the reasons is those two sort of go together. Divided Nation, this one here, mm -hmm. I'm going to be talking on that at uh, the, the gala banquet at NRB mm -hmm. uh, here uh, on the Friday night as they finish. And challenging people concerning what's happening to the church an exodus of the younger generations and looking at the culture becoming more anti-god secularized mm -hmm. every day and why this has happened and what the solution to it is i, I want to throw a thought out and and you tell me if if i was right on this I, ken i became a believer when i was in college i was 21 years old and all my friends were evolutionists all my professors were and i was too i mean i really had you asked me uh, I figured evolution was how it happened. That's all I heard in my K-12 through public schooling. And then as a Christian, I was conflicted, and I thought, well, uh, you know, maybe evolution, uh, God created, but evolution was the tool he used. And then I began to realize that all of my friends that were, and this is 30 years ago in the late 80s, but all my friends that were pro-abortion, pro-LGBTQ, and all of these issues, they, they tried to justify it based on Darwinian evolution. And here's my question, if, if I was right on this. I thought, you know, Darwin's theory was the second worst thing that befell the human race right, beh right behind the fall of Genesis 3. I, I think evolution as a cultural and intellectual force has put more people in hell than, than just about anything. And a lot of ministers and people don't think it's that serious i think it is well what greater lie can you tell the world than there is no god and the bible is not true and that's really what darwinian evolution is all about you know if you read darwin's own letters and writings he was on about naturalism he wanted to explain the whole universe by natural processes and you know when you look at what's happened in our modern church because so many of our christian leaders the majority of them not all but the majority um, and the majority of our seminaries, Bible colleges, have certainly adopted uh, Darwinian ideas, evolution, millions of years in one way or another, and they've reinterpreted Genesis, they reinterpreted the days or reinterpreted the, the, uh, the account uh, of creation there in some way. And what that's do doing is undermining the authority of the Word of God, and it's caused many pastors not to want to deal with Genesis because they think it's too controversial and it's going to create division and so on. And we have generations of kids, 85 to 90% of kids from church homes go to the public schools where they're throwing God out, the Bible out, prayer out, creation out. They teach evolution as fact. They teach naturalism as fact. It's really an atheistic worldview being imposed on them. Those kids have been coming to our churches and being told by many of their leaders and Sunday school teachers, you can believe in what you taught at school. That doesn't matter. Just trust in Jesus. And, and, you know, I hear a lot of that these days. Look, the most important thing, just trust in Jesus. Where's the message Jesus come from? It comes from this book. And if you want to go and explain to somebody, you know, the, the message of the gospel, like I have many people saying, look, you shouldn't touch Genesis, too controversial. Just tell people about the gospel. Okay, if, so if you're going to tell someone uh, you're a sinner and they say, what does that mean? Where does sin come from? How do you do that without Genesis? Um, why did Jesus die on a cross? Death? Why? Why death? Well, how do you do that without Genesis? Uh, why do people die? How do you do that without Genesis? Genesis has the foundation for the gospel because mm -hmm. we learn that, that um, our ancestor Adam rebelled against God and that's how sin came into the world. In fact, Paul in Romans 5 says, by one man sin entered the world and death by sin. <clears throat> in other words, goes back to Genesis to uh, give the foundation for the gospel. Just like you mentioned earlier about Jesus, quoting from Genesis, Matthew 19, when Jesus asked about marriage, he says, and it's in Mark 10 as well, have you not read, he who made the beginning made the male and female, which just sorts out the gender issue, by the way, because there's two genders. No problem solved. Uh, there's Jesus <laughs> attesting to two genders. And then, uh, that's Genesis 1.27, and then says, for this cause shall a man leave his father and mother and cleave unto his wife, and there'll be one flesh. That's Genesis 2.24. And so if you, you think of the younger generations we have today that have been coming to our churches and told, don't worry about Genesis, and you, you can take man's ideas of evolution of millions of years and, and reinterpret Genesis, don't worry about that. So once you take man's ideas outside of Scripture to add them into Scripture, reinterpret Scripture, why shouldn't they do that with marriage? 
uh, take man's view of marriage? Why shouldn't they take man's view of abortion uh, and, and saying, you know, the, of a life and, and gender and so on, and which is what's happening. And the point is, too, much of the church, because they've been so intimidated by, by evolution, millions of years, the academics, they've been told, even many seminaries and Bible colleges, not to believe in literal genesis, we have, we have generations of kids that have no foundation for any doctrine. Because if you're going to deal with gender, you've got to start with Genesis 1 to 11, the origin of gender. If you're going to deal with marriage, you've got to start with Genesis 1 to 11. Racism, you've got to start with Genesis 1 to 11. If you're going to deal with death and suffering, you've got to start from Genesis 1 to 11. Genesis 1 to 11 is the foundation for the rest of the Bible, for all of our doctrine. It's the and, foundation and really for, for our worldview. For all of history. It's foundation of everything. Yeah. And, well, if, and if you don't teach that foundation, they're not going to go know what to believe and why. And when you've told them the Bible is not the absolute authority of the Word of God, you can't trust it in this area, ultimately anything goes except Christianity. Yeah, but <laughs> the whole idea of, like the book of Romans, chapter 1, when I read Romans chapter 1 and see the, the downward spiral of man, and you take that back to Genesis 11, they, I hate to use the word compliment, but they, it's a commentary on on Romans because they denied God and that's exactly what the the you know the serpent would do in in reality and so it fits together so how in the world unless we have that foundation in Genesis and the Old Testament that a lot of people say oh no no we don't need that the New Testament becomes a book yeah it's it's good but there he came to fulfill it didn't he, Ken? I mean, right. that's the whole idea. So with having Jesus without the Old Testament, uh, there's really no foundation, is there? Well, if you start in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, we have there, we know, know and understand that that's the promise of the Messiah. And uh, Genesis 3, 15 tells us about the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. You realize the rest of the Bible, from then onwards, is all about the battle between the seed of the serpent and, and the seed of the woman. That's, Amen. that's what it's all about for the that's whole true. of the rest of the Bible. And then, of course, as we get uh, into the New Testament, we learn about uh, the seed of the woman. We learn about uh, God's Son who steps into history to be one of us, the God-man dying on the cross, be raised from the dead, offers that free gift of salvation. And, of course, there's going to be a new heavens and a new earth, and you know, it'll be the end of all things and the culmination of all things. But, you know, the, the whole Bible... Uh, is really about uh, Jesus Christ, and it's all about uh, the gospel. But Genesis 1 to 11 sets the foundation to understand it. And when you have generations of kids today who have been told science disproves the Bible, the Bible's not true, don't trust it, and many of our Christian leaders have said, you know, Genesis, don't worry about that, doesn't matter, they, they're not going to understand the gospel. That's true. Let alone all of our other doctrines, because everything is founded well, in I Genesis hate, 1 to 11. I hate to say this, but my Old Testament professor said we'll start in Genesis 12. Oh, my word. No, no, really? Yes, yes, yes. And I, I mean, I was not, I was brought up in a secular school, mm. but I'm of the age where they didn't teach, they, they taught creation. This was in the 60s now. Yeah. But it, in my little rural area way back in northeast Mississippi, uh, yeah, and when I went to college and I heard about evolution, I thought these, I said, they, they're the ones that's lost their mind, not me. Uh, we're listening. Uh, we're on Exploring the Word right now, the American Family Radio Network, and Ken Ham is our guest. Now, when we come back, folks, because everybody's always asking, what do we do? How do we train our young people? We're going to get the great answer from Ken Ham of Answers in Genesis. Stay tuned. Exploring the Word is back live from the National Religious Broadcasters Convention after this. This is Pause to Pray. A chance each day to stop down from the daily noise of life and pray for our country's leaders. Today we pray for Norman Sharpless, director of the National Cancer Institute. His office conducts research, training, and other activities related to the causes, prevention, diagnosis, and treatment of cancer. James 5.15 reminds us of the health and healing we seek from God. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise them up. If they have sinned, they will be forgiven. Right now, with this in mind, let's pray together. Almighty God, we ask for guidance for Norman Sharpless in his work at the National Cancer Institute. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Pause to Pray is the service of this station and the Presidential Prayer Team. Get your 2022 prayer guide 
and make this the year of prayer. Available now at pausetopray.org. Non-believers wonder how Christians can follow a king they can't see. But Dr. Tony Evans says it makes perfect sense when you understand the nature of God's kingdom now and in the future. He'll share some insight with us today as we spend two minutes with Tony. We are looking forward to the day when Jesus Christ will physically leave heaven, come down to earth, go to Jerusalem, set up his throne in Jerusalem, and from Israel, he will run the entire earth. All of that is part of the kingdom that is to come or the not yet kingdom. But in the now kingdom, he is ruling in heaven on the right-hand side of the Father in his spiritual rule. When he comes in the kingdom to come, he will rule physically. In the now kingdom, he rules spiritually. He still rules, but he doesn't rule on earth. He rules from heaven. Now, the way he rules from heaven is through our communication system called prayer. And when you say your kingdom come, you're saying I am now willing to be under the authority of the king because guess what? It's your house. The Bible calls this discipleship. The Bible calls this discipleship. Another phrase that the Bible uses to describe being this kingdom person is uh, coming under the lordship of Jesus Christ. Learn why following Jesus is more about relationship than rules. Check out Tony's popular book, Kingdom Disciples, available online at TonyEvans.org. Then join us next time for Two Minutes with Tony. Word of God speak. Welcome back. You're listening to Exploring the Word on American Family Radio. I'm finding myself in the midst of you beyond the music beyond the noise all that welcome back to exploring the word Bert and alex with you today and we're in nashville tennessee at the national religious broadcasters meeting uh we walk around and see familiar faces and some of them we're able to talk and say hey it's good to see you again others oh i've been waiting opportunity to meet you and uh, both of those are true, but today on Exploring the Word, we have someone that's been with us before, uh, two to four years ago. I know it was in Nashville. I can't remember if it was two or four, but uh, he was with us on Exploring the Word, and uh, Ken Helm is back by popular demand, I'm mm-hmm. telling you, Amen. and uh, we're so glad to have you, Ken, and it is, I've got one thing. I know Alex is wanting to ask you something about the Creation Museum. But coming from Australia to America, uh, I believe it was God's, uh, no doubt, God's desire. But would you let us know about your, you know, your journey coming to Christ? I, I've, I've not heard that. I knew you came, you're a Christian, but tell us about your experience with Christ. I, I would, that's, I'm not asking that for the audience. I'm asking that for me, brother. Well, you know, um, I was brought up in Australia, which is a very pagan country, and not, you know, a very small percentage of Christians and not a lot of churches. It's not like America where there have been, you know, churches on every street corner, so to speak, and particularly in the Bible Belt areas and so on. But um, uh, my, my father, it was interesting, my father died when he was 66, and my brother was with my father in hospital sitting beside him asking him a question, why did you love God's word so much? And he said his father died when he was 16, so he turned to the words of his heavenly father and he read them over and over and over and over again, was saturated in the Word of God. And my father hated compromise because he was committed to believing God's Word, letting God's Word speak to him and, and from the, you know, the, the literature, the language, and in the uh, grammatical context and so on. And, um, so, and my mother was brought up uh, by godly parents and... So I was brought into to a home and, and you know, it, it was six kids all together eventually, but of parents who just loved the Lord and had a heart for reaching people with the gospel. And so my father's a teacher and we were transferred around all sorts of country areas of Queensland. Sometimes we'd go 
to a town where there was no church or where there's only one church or um, there were no Sunday schools. My parents would start Sunday schools because, and, and they would bring in missionaries from the Open Air Campaigners, which is a mission organization that started in Australia, uh, to be able to reach people with the gospel. And they, you know, they didn't have any money or anything like that. My parents never had much in the way of material things, but they used whatever they could for training their own children and for reaching others uh, with the gospel. And uh, some of those uh, churches we went to, the pastors had been in infected by liberal theology. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, tr trying to explain away the miracles by natural processes and so on. And my father in front, front of them, in front of us, would go up and challenge them as to what God's word says. His favorite, you know, scriptures were, have you not read? It is written. You know, the emphasis <laughs> on the authority of the word. <laughs> and so he studied liberal theology to make sure that he knew the arguments so he could equip us as kids with the answers so we wouldn't be led astray. He was really teaching us apologetics, yeah, as, right, as you right. think about that, and dealing with the attacks on God's Word in those days. And so I say all that as background <clears throat> to understand you know, the, the impact that had on me. When I was 10 years old, I was in a, a country town, well, basically a country town in North Queensland called Innisfale, and uh, so it's way up in the north. I was born in Cairns, which is way up uh, the north there too. And the open air campaigners were invited in to do this mission at the church my parents were at, and they brought those in. And the missionary, I was 10 years old, and I remember the missionary challenging us that um, who's willing to, uh, to uh, commit to the Lord that you're willing to go wherever God wants you to go and do whatever God wants you to do. And I remember at that stage saying, yes, you know, what my parents have taught me, yes, I, I do believe God's word and, and, and put my faith and trust in the Lord Jesus. And I want to go wherever he wants me to go and do whatever he wants me to do. And I, I remember they hand out a little sheet of paper the missionary did and you signed this sheet saying, I'm going to make that commitment. I didn't realize that it mean living in Kentucky and, <laughs> and uh, being a part of building an ark and a creation museum. Yeah. But you know what's very interesting is um, that uh, you know, I, I met my wife, Mally, in Brisbane, and actually this year will be our 50th wedding anniversary. Well, congratulations. Uh, so, Amen. And what we a have, testimony. We have 18 grandchildren and, you know, five kids, four that are married, one single. Can I advertise? Yes, yes. We, we, will, we will do that for you. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> she, she's a great cook. And <laughs> she works at Answers in Genesis. Anyway. Uh, so, uh, it looks better, we, it we, looks better than her dad. We, I mean, you know, let's we're just, that in. I'm, we're just getting desperate here. <laughs> no, but um, so, but my, my wife, uh, we were talking yeah, years later, and I didn't even realize this too many years later, about the same time that I made that commitment, she was in Sunday school. Her parents sent her to Sunday school. And the Sunday school teacher had a challenge concerning the gospel. And she responded uh, to the gospel to commit her life to the Lord. And she said that she prayed specifically, Lord, if you did that for me, you died for me on the cross, I want to go wherever you want me to go and do whatever you want me to do. And we realized we both had made that same commitment. Those are not wimpy commitments now, Ken. They're, no, I mean, you not. know. And, uh, and God brought us together. Amen. Mm -hmm. And then she has never been negative at all about all my travels and being away. She sees that she's a part of this whole ministry. Yeah. You know, the Ministry of Answers in Genesis Art Creation Museum wouldn't be here if I didn't have the wife that I have because... People don't know, um, only God knows, the incredible sacrifice that she has made over the years and mm -hmm. her commitment and what Amen. she has done. And, Praise uh, God for her. That, and, and because of that, uh, you know, even coming to America, she never questioned it, if that's what God's called us to do. And there was even some special testimony in regard to how God showed us very clearly we were meant to come. Uh, as missionaries to America. So, you know, th there's a lot to the whole, whole story. Well, the reason I wanted to hear that, I mean, the Creation Museum... The ark is is beyond description, but when you hear some stories behind it, mm -hmm. yeah, it and how makes, God yes, it and how God did it. It for those of us, it's encouraging to us to know anywhere, anytime, anything. Lord, I'm willing. I signed a similar similar uh, challenge. And he'll 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 take us. Well, if you really mean it, he'll take you up on it. Amen. Yeah, and that's what I encourage encourage people to do. You know, I've had a lot of young people come to me and say, "How do you, how do you discern God's will for my life?" Whatever I say, if you make that commitment and you mean it one hundred percent, I want to do what you want me to do, go where you want me to go, and I really mean it. If you really mean it, 
he, he will show you. Amen. And uh, he'll open doors, close doors. And Bert, the next time you're at the Creation Museum, make sure uh, you check out the lobby uh, of our uh, auditorium there. We have, at the Creation Museum, we have a thousand-seat auditorium there. In the lobby, we have a nice new big exhibit called the Ham Family Legacy Exhibit, which has my father's Bible in there, opened with all his notes in it. <laughs> and a little Noah's Ark he built me years and years ago. I was going to ask ago. you, d does my memory serve me? Didn't your father make a model of Noah's Ark? Yeah, yeah he made a model of Noah's Ark because he knew of, knew of the, the, the importance of that event, of the flood event. And he, he knew of the importance of standing on a literal genesis, and he, and he gave me that. So I've got that there in Amen. the little glass case. Amen. And pictures of my mother and father, and it, it's called Legacy Exhibit because it's challenging people. What legacy are you leaving in your children and in this world? Because really, the Ark, the Creation Museum, the Ministry of Answers in Genesis, that directly impacts a minimum from our research of 30 million people a year, and indirectly tens of millions more, is a legacy of parents who taught their children to stand uncompromisingly, boldly Amen. on the authority of the Word of God and to be committed to God and His Word and to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. Ken, I gotta, I'm getting Hallelujah. a <laughs> uh, message now from listeners, because we are live, by the way, if you're just tuning in, this is the American Family Radio Network. We're coming to you from National Religious Broadcasters in Nashville, and we're talking with Ken Ham. But a listener says, quote, the creation to Babel commentary from Ken Ham is awesome. You gotta get it. That's a listener testimony right well, now. Well, thank you. Actually, it's very, it's a very different commentary. It's very unique because you know a lot of commentaries you get and they spend two pages on one word and and you know the meaning of a word and so on. And what I did was, it's really forty years out in the field and all the questions I've been asked and challenged with concerning Genesis, mm -hmm. put it into a verse-by-verse -verse commentary, but in a readable form for the whole family so fathers can sit there and read it to everyone. And, and it's good for adults, it's good for kids, and yet I, I discuss all the, you know, the meanings of the word day and so on mm -hmm. and, sure, and deal sure. with all the hard issues, and it has a devotional aspect as well. The combination. Um, it, See, that really speaks. Some of the commentaries that are just simply devotional, yeah. they, they miss what's they so many questions that are not answered. Yes. Those that are so technical and go into them, they lose you. Right. And you say, man, who wants to read this? But the combination is, uh, honestly, that's not just good writing. That's good preaching, too, by the way, Ken. Well, it... You know, I write the way I teach. Okay, so, okay, that's you it. You know, there. Mark Lloyd calls it stream of consciousness typing. Well, uh, exactly. <laughs> well, I, I want to say this, and folks, listen, because everybody talks about the attrition rate. You know, we raise our kids in church and youth group, and more than three-fourths of kids, they'll go away to the university, go away to college, and they'll walk away from the church or become agnostic. Okay, here is... Uh, the answer. I mean, and Ken, more and more churches will have the poster, the seven seas of creation. So here's my twofold question, because AIG, everybody knows, well, not everybody, but many people know about the ARC and the museum, but you all create curriculum. You right. all create teaching resources. And, uh, you know, thank God for the adults that come back to Christ and to the Word, but you all are helping preemptively equip children, teenagers, by helping them understand. So talk about, if you would please, the seven C's of creation and other curriculum that, that you and your team have created to help equip the minds of young people. And, and, and I'll give you the background of that, but just to sort of jump ahead a little bit, we produced a Sunday school curriculum uh, called Answers Bible Curriculum. And one of the reasons was, you know, I, I talked to our staff uh, years ago and published a book in 2009 called Already Gone. The research okay. was showing we're losing younger generations from the church. And, and we did the research because they weren't being taught apologetics. They weren't being taught to think foundationally from God's word. And so I said, we need to produce a Sunday school curriculum because most Sunday school curriculum is very shallow, fluff and stuff, you know, stories, if you know what I mean. Yeah, draw, sure. a um, picture, draw a picture so, of a giraffe. So we, we produced... Answers Bible Curriculum, which teaches apologetics, biblical authority, chronological doctrine, worldview, and it's based on the seven C's, but it's a four-year program, and we've now just been producing the uh, homeschool edition of that as well. It's really unique, and about 10,000 churches have been using it, and they said it's just it's blowing them out of the water. They said revolutionizing our churches, revolutionizing the young people. People have a hunger for the word, you know, and, and children want to learn. And this is very meaty. And, and 
the seven C's has really become uh, some a foundational teaching for a lot of things. You know, I've written some books like uh, Dinosaurs for Kids, and I developed the seven ages of dinosaurs. They're not millions of years. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so. Uh, different ages, you know, the, the fallen age, and uh, so it goes on. Uh, but And then the seven races, you know, I talk about uh, the created race, you know, Adam's race and the saved race and, and so the lamb's race and so on. Uh, but the seven seas, really that came out of, um, you know, the experience I had in Australia of... Uh, going to churches and talking to, to children and talking to adults in churches and realizing people are grappling with, how, how do you understand all these issues, issues of origins and creation evolution and marriage and morality and you know races and how do you deal with all this? And one of the things that I really, really started to grasp was that they didn't have this linear understanding of history to have a foundation that brings it all together. So when you go through um, the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, I summarized it as seven C's. So creation, perfect creation, corruption, marred by sin, and so the entrance of sin and death and the promise of the Savior. Um, catastrophe, the flood of Noah's day, that's why you have fossils all over the earth, and Noah's ark is a picture of Jesus and so on. Uh, and then uh, you have uh, confusion, the Tower of Babel, uh, so God gives different languages forming different people groups, not races, but people groups, and then Christ cross consummation, right? So it's really Genesis to Revelation, and and Christ really involves you know the promise of the Savior in Genesis three fifteen, the call of Abraham, and so on, and cross uh, that God's Son died on the cross, raised from the dead, consummation one day be new heavens, new earth. But if you take the first four C's: creation, corruption, catastrophe, confusion, that's Genesis one to eleven. That's the foundational history for the rest of the Bible. It's a foundational history for our worldview. It's a foundational history for everything. And once you understand all the events there, I mean, you have the creation of marriage, you have the origin of sin and the origin of death and the origin of, of nations and the origin of language and the origin of clothing. It's the, it's the origin of all the basic entities of life in the universe. Once you have that, that uh, those first four C's as a foundation, it brings everything together because then you build a biblical worldview. Most people in our churches don't have a true biblical worldview. And if I can give you an example of why this is so important, I've seen a lot of Sunday school material and children's books that'll say things like, children, can't you see that uh, God made this beautiful world we live in? Look at this beautiful world, God made it. Then the atheists say, did, you, did, did your parents tell you, you know, your church tell you this is a beautiful world? Look at all the death and suffering out there. It's an ugly world. There can't be a loving God. You know, is this the world he created? He created this with all this disease and suffering and horrible things. But if you've taught them from Genesis 1 to 11 as the foundation, you realize God created a perfect world, but our sin in Adam messed it up. Mm -hmm. Now we live in a fallen world. This is not the world as God made it. So it's important to understand that. And, you know, a lot of young people today say, how can there be a loving God with all this death and suffering? they need to understand death is an enemy, an intrusion mm. because of That's sin. True. Whereas many of the Christian leaders have told them you can believe in millions of years of death. Well, then, then they, they, yeah. they don't understand. Then, then it doesn't make sense to them. You're listening to Exploring the Word, Ken Ham. Uh, the website for Answers in Genesis? Answersingenesis.org. Answersingenesis.org. Stay tuned. Bert, isn't this great? Yes. We're, we're going to continue on after this. Yeah, brief. we're going to have questions. 888-589-8840. And... It's time to get not just two answers, but the answer from Answers in Genesis. Stay tuned for more. A drinking spree that leads to a fatal accident. Surely nothing good can come out of that scenario. But God offers redemption from the wreckage we make of our lives. Matthew Marr, no relation to the singer, knows firsthand because he's lived it. His testimony is a roller coaster ride of success, hopelessness, and God's overwhelming grace. You can read his incredible story, Wreckage to Redemption, in the March edition of The Stand, formerly the AFA Journal. Sign up today at afa.net slash the stand. Hello, I'm Don Hawkins, here to tell you about Encouragement Live, 55 minutes of industrial strength radio encouragement featuring resourceful guests, plus practical biblical insights to help you face life's challenges. 
we'll be taking your phone calls. So plan to join us for Encouragement Live, Saturdays at 7.05 p.m. Central, 8.05 p.m. Eastern, here on American Family Radio. And when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. My name is Abraham Hamilton III, and this is the Hamilton Minute. Full weaponization of the federal government to crush a political opponent. Politicians and a political party that build themselves as pro-life while refusing to actually do what's in their power to stop the killing of little babies. The successful and unrelenting advance of regressivism. All of these are signs that our national condition is not merely a natural phenomenon. It's spiritual. Civic engagement without spiritual engagement produces political roller coasters. National course correction will only come by national repentance. We must elevate him. Listen each weekday from 5 to 6 p.m. Central for The Hamilton Corner or visit the podcast page at AFR.net for more from Abraham Hamilton III, public policy analyst for the American Family Association. This is Dr. Stephen Rummage with a minute in God's Word to help you keep moving forward. In Psalm 16, verse 6, David wrote, The boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Surely I have a delightful inheritance. A skillful gardener knows how to make her plants flourish. She creates the borders, plants complementary flowers, protects her plants from weeds, and ensures the right amounts of water and fertilizer, all for her garden to grow beautifully. David's life included its share of suffering, yet he described his life the way we might describe a garden, pleasant and delightful. David knew God's sovereignty had made his life that way. Because God is sovereign, he has the power to do whatever he desires in your life. And because God is unfailingly good, you can trust that his plans are always the absolute best plans. For more resources, visit movingforwardradio.org. Join me every Sunday morning at 8.30 Central for Moving Forward right here on AFR. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers. Remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. 1 Thessalonians 1, 3. American Family Radio. Welcome back to Exploring the Word on American Family Radio. We believe in the Holy Spirit. Welcome back to Exploring the Word. Oh, this is the day, folks. If you've ever wanted to call in, the number is 888-589-8840. We have with us Ken Ham. Now, I'm going to ask you, folks, let's keep it related to creation and Genesis. Uh, All the other Bible questions and theological questions, please save for Bird and I for another day. We have Ken Ham with us of the Ark Encounter. you got to go there. Drop what you're doing Folks, go to Northern Kentucky and see the Creation Museum, the Ark. I've been there, been to the Creation Museum half a dozen times, been to the Ark three times. I promise you will not be disappointed. But the calls, 888-589-8840, this is your chance. We have the man, the subject matter expert. Uh, And Ken, before we go to the calls, I've got one. Before the fall of Genesis 3, would poison ivy have been poisoned? Uh, no. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, you know, all the, the, the plants and the toxins, that's a consequence of but, the curse, isn't it? Yeah, but before the fall, you would have been perfect. Uh, well. But you didn't exist back then. That's true. Which that's means true. one thing we can look forward to, you'll be perfect in heaven. Amen. And but my, not now, Alex. You, you know what now. my tombstone can say? <laughs> Thin at last. <laughs> you know, one of the things we've got to remember is the fall disrupted everything. It did, yeah. And... Originally, God said everything he made was very good. Uh, So there was no death in the world. There wasn't going to be anything that would harm Adam or Eve or or anything like that. It's hard for us to understand that because we're living in a fallen world. So we've never experienced a perfect world. Only two people have ever experienced a perfect world, and that was Adam and Eve. Uh, None of the rest of us have. And with 6,000 years of the curse... Uh, you know, things are degenerating, and so, sure. you know, there's all sorts of problems that we have today. So we can't look at today's world and say, how could it have been perfect before, and how could poison ivy have not been 
poisonous or anything. What we've got to look at is say it originally was all perfect, mm. but now it's degenerated to where it is. Okay, those are the kind of questions and answers we're going to get, and we're going to go to the phone lines and make that first call is from Steve from Illinois. Welcome, Steve. Yes, go right ahead with your question. I am a born-again, spirit-filled petroleum geologist. I uh, do not believe in evolution. I believe in creation. Uh, I've also studied the scriptures and realized that when it says a day is a day, it means it's a day. The, uh, the question I have is, how the stratigraphy of the earth, the basins, the mountain ranges, um, how that fits in with the flood, because the flood does not explain to me how the stratigraphy is developed and, and what I see in the subsurface, in the, in the drilling, and those sorts of things. So if it is a young earth, then is the earth created in a mature fashion that all these things fit into that pattern? Okay, Steve, great question. Thank you. We're going to turn it well, to Hank Ken. Um, yeah, we want to get through a lot of calls, so I have to be real quick and just give some big-picture uh, answers here. Uh, you know, we've got to th we think of the flood as a very dynamic event. Um, and so we believe, for instance, uh, that there was one continent before the flood that split up uh, during the flood towards the end of the flood, um, Psalm 104 seems to indicate uh, how the mountain ranges came about, that God raised up the mountains and lowered the ocean basins. Uh, in, in other words, the mountains weren't as high or the ocean basins weren't as deep before the flood, which explains why you have, for instance, marine fossils on the top of Mount Everest, because the flood didn't cover Mount Everest. That area was all raised up. So, uh, and, and, you know, when you have um, uh, the, the catastrophism of, uh, when you look at the... Uh, um, hydrology in, in regard to water and in regard to sediments and so on. Uh, it, it's a very complicated sort of thing, but one of the things you start to see is that, for instance, uh, there's you can get all sorts of uh, flows like turbidity currents and so on, you, mud flows. Uh, you, you, as water slows down, uh, the particles that are in it will uh, actually uh, be deposited at, at different times depending on their size, depending on their density. It's sort of like, you know, just going out. Remember the experiment we did at school as little kids? You go out and dig up the dirt and put in a put in a bottle and put water in it, shake it up and let it sit and it, it sorts out into layers. Well, it would be sort of like that with a flood, only much more dynamic with all sorts of uh, currents going in different directions. One of the things you see in a lot of the sedimentary strata, you, you see uh, the sand grains, for instance, um, that uh, at, at certain angles showing you it was laid down by rapid currents, wasn't laid down slowly. So there's all sorts of information there. I would encourage people to look at um, a book by uh, Dr. Andrew Snelling. Dr. Andrew Snelling is our geologist and uh, he has a two-volume work uh, on geology, on flood geology, uh, that you can get from our online uh, bookstore, S Catastrophic Geology. Mm -hmm. And it's really worth reading if you want to understand the whole dynamics of the flood and how that could have been done. He just did research at the Grand Canyon, actually. Mm -hmm. When you go to the Grand Canyon, the whole area was uplifted, and you yeah. see those layers that are bent. And one of the things he's shown is from all the sections he did on the samples that he collected is that they were bent when they were soft. They could not have been bent through right. heat and pressure over millions of years. And if you can get all the papers on that if you go to, our, we have a technical journal that's free, Answers Research Journal. It has its own website, so just um, Google Answers Research Journal and you'll be able to find the articles there showing you the in-depth geological research uh, mm -hmm. that shows that that area the whole Grand Canyon, the layers were laid down quickly, mm -hmm. and the whole area was uplifted at the end of the flood. Uh, it all goes against millions of years. Okay, thank you. Let's go to Mississippi. Jerry, welcome. Yes, uh, Dr. Bird, uh, my question is regarding the gap theory, is there any credible evidence that such a thing may have existed or just that thought? Whatever. Great question. The gap theory. Well, you've got to look at the origin of the gap theory, first of all. Uh, the gap theory really came about in the 1800s by, from Thomas Chalmers, the founder of the Free Church of Scotland, who 
um, at that stage, the, you know, atheists and deists had started to popularize the idea of millions of years because they wanted to explain thing, everything by naturalism. They rejected the flood of Noah's day. And so they said there were, the flood didn't form the fossil. The fossil layers were laid down over millions of years um, before man. And what happened is he took that and said, let's fit it in the gap between Genesis 1, 1 and 1, 2. And eventually it developed into this whole gap theory, ruin reconstruction idea that uh, God created this world and Lucifer ruled and, and then he rebelled. And so then God judged with a flood called Lucifer's flood. And then he recreated everything in, in six days. And so your fossils and that all fit in this uh, supposed gap and so on. And if you, I mean, if you read in the Schofield Reference Bible, you find the gap theory is in the notes. It's not in the text, by the way. Mm -hmm. It's in the notes that aren't inspired. Remember yeah. that. The text is, is what's inspired uh, by God. But, um, but see, as soon as you do that, number one, you're forcing something into the Bible from outside Scripture. Yeah. That's number one. Number two, then you've got death before sin, because if you've got all these fossil layers, you know, you, you've got death before sin. Number three, think about this. The, the classic gap theory says the fossil layers were produced by a flood called Lucifer's Flood. I mean, you can look at that in, in the Schofield Reference Bible, Dake's Entertainment Reference Bible, and, and so on. Now, here's the interesting thing. Why was the gap theory developed in the first place? To take the, uh, the supposed millions of years that came out of naturalism by people who said the fossils were laid down slowly over millions mm. of years, right? So it took the fossil record that was supposedly millions of years old because it was laid down slowly, but then explained it away with a flood called Lucifer's Flood, which, and, and, which just did away with the reason you wanted. And, and let me say, gap. it's very dangerous when our assumptions shape our conclusions about right. Scripture. In, in reality, it should be Scripture should shape our conclusions. But scripture and, should be judging what, what uh, the person is saying. And so, you know, when you... Um, and, and I say to people... Why have a flood form the fossils that the Bible doesn't talk about? Why not have a flood form the fossils that the Bible does talk about, which yeah, is Noah's right. flood? Amen. Well, that's, that's great. Let's go to North Carolina and talk to Bruce. Bruce, what's your question? Uh, yes. Um, first of all, I really appreciate you guys just deep understanding of the Bible, and I listen to you all the time. Thank you. Um, but the, my question is, as it pertains to Adam and Eve, in a literal sense, if it was one man and one woman, how, how did they create all of mankind without that, well, the incest? I know it's probably a sensitive subject, but it's always bothered me, and I don't know how to, how to answer Good question. questions yeah. when it comes to that. No, I, I understand exactly what you're saying. Okay, so the Bible tells us there was uh, one, 1 Corinthians 15.45 says Adam was the first man, Genesis 3.20, Eve was the mother of all the living. Um, so it's very obvious there was only one man and one woman to start with. They were told to be fruitful and multiply. Um, we, we, we read about um, uh, the, the sons Cain and Abel and Seth uh, there in the Bible. Um, but then if you read Genesis 5.4, it says Adam had sons and daughters. So if you get rid of any outside influences, just get rid of all outside ideas, get rid of the word incest for the moment, just think in terms of if this is true and Adam and Eve had sons and daughters, and marriage is one man for one woman, which we know that's the doctrine of marriage um, based on God's word, then originally brothers had to marry sisters. Now, people say, now, wait a minute, wait a minute, isn't that incest? Well, first of all, the word incest didn't come about until, what, the 16th, 14th, 15th century or something like that. But here's the point. Think about this for a moment. When did the laws against close intermarriage first come into being in the Bible? It wasn't until uh, the time of Moses in Leviticus. We read about them, okay? Um, when God said no longer, we're close relations to marry. See, if you think about it, when a man and woman gets married today, so if you're married and um, presume you are because you, uh, you mentioned something about your children, asking questions like that. So when you got married, did you marry your relation? And the answer is yes, right? In fact, I'm even related to Bert and, and, and to Alex and everybody here uh, because we all go back to Adam and Eve. We're all related. Mm. It's just today it's best not to marry someone closely related to you. And why is that? Because when Adam sinned, 
now it, when, gener, uh, when uh, you have generation after generation, as genes are copied from one generation to the next, there can be copying mistakes and mutations because we live in a fallen world. And so we've accumulated a lot of mistakes. So if brother and sister, if close relations were to marry today, those mistakes can get together and reinforce each other and cause all sorts of problems in the offspring. That's why it's better to marry someone further away in relationship from you. Right. So then a good gene is more likely to override a bad gene. But the further, further back in history you go, the less of a problem that is. Right. And so there was no problem originally with a brother and sister marrying. It's no different than a man and woman getting married today except in the closeness of the relationship. And think about it, um, nations around the world, you can Google this. If you Google nations around the world uh, about their laws about who can get married and so on, they'll be different in different nations depending on what they've decided but the, the whole basis of the problem with close intermarriage really comes from the Bible from that time of, of Leviticus and, mm -hmm. and Moses. So Recessive genes become dominant mm -hmm. the more intermarried a community is. And then that can create all sorts of problems. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, we're going to go to Louisiana. Is it Chinero? Yes. Okay, welcome. Thank you. Um, so in Genesis, we, we learned that God created a perfect world. There was no sin. Yet we are also told that he put uh, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil there in the garden and warned Adam um, not to eat from it. So what would be the danger of knowing something that didn't exist, evil? Well, you know, um, when God created Adam, he didn't create Adam as a, as a puppet. Uh, he, he created Adam and wanted Adam to love him and obey him uh, for, uh, because we chose to do that, because we wanted to. And so he gave him the choice of that tree so that it, it, it had nothing to do with the fruit itself. The tree was a literal tree. The fruit was a literal tree. But if you eat of that tree, you will surely uh, die. And that's, but the thing is, God is infinite, and God is infinitely good, and so God infinitely chooses good. We are finite beings, and so therefore God gave us a, a choice so that we could look to him and not look to ourselves. Um, I, I'm not sure if I'm answering your question there or not, but it's, it's to really understand that uh, God wanted us to live in a perfect world, in a perfect relationship, but he knew that we would rebel, and so that's why sin came into the world. Death is a result of sin and uh, why we need a Savior. True, true relationship must involve choice. Mm -hmm. It does. I want to get to this last question today, and it's Gammy from North Carolina. Is it Gammy? G-A-M-Y? J-A-M-Y. J, Jammy. Go ahead. Go ahead, brother. Thank you guys for uh, taking my call and for what you guys do, but I'll make this quick. Basically, I want to know where giants come from. Um, I, seem, I seem to think that in Genesis, in uh, either chapter 4 or 6, it starts to talk about children of uh, God and then the children of men and, and all that stuff. But I, I think that... It, well, Jamie, I'm just going to stop you real quick. Uh, we've got the question, and we're going to let Ken finish that out. I'm not interrupting on purpose, but for the need. Go ahead. Hey, there are different views in the, in, in, within the church in regard to that issue of Genesis chapter 6 and the Nephilim and, and who they were. And, uh, you know, there, there, there are some views that they're the product of men and angels mating together, which I don't accept at all because uh, they wouldn't even genetically uh, be compatible and angels don't marry. And there's all sorts of uh, issues there. But uh, if you look after the flood, um, the sons of Anak, well, it, it's, it's a slightly different word, but they were giants, and uh, the Israelites had to fight giants. I just think it's just a variation in humans of a, of a group of humans that were giants. I, Dr. Helm, thank you. Thank you I, I so want to tell you, according to the board, you would be welcomed back to answer questions. It's full all the time, Alex. For Ken Ham from Answers in Genesis, one of the great apologetics ministries in the world. Go to the Creation Museum, the Ark Encounter. Very quickly, the website is? Answersingenesis.org. Answersingenesis.org. Thanks for listening to Exploring the Word. Stay tuned. Keep your radio on AFR. Tell somebody about Exploring the Word, but most of all, tell everybody about Jesus.
The views and opinions expressed in this broadcast may not necessarily reflect those of the American Family Association or American Family Radio.